Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. We're going to do something a little different today. I'm starting the service. I know. And then, so here's how it's going to go. For those of you that have church anxiety, we're going to do... Uh, we're going to do a teaching on Genesis 1, then we're going to do some, some questions and maybe have some responses, and then we're going to sing one song, and then Susie's going to come up and lead us into the stations, and then we're going to sing the rest of the songs, and at the stations, we write down prayer requests, we can give, and, um, and then we can take the Lord's Supper together, all right? And then, then your day is free. You punched your ticket, you served your time, God is happy with you, go be free. Yes, if you are, if, if you've decided to take back the information you just gave us, just let us know. No, anyway, I'm, I'm in a great mood because it's fall and because there are people dressed in this room like pumpkin spice lattes and it just feels good. Just, it feels like good in here today. However, I don't know about you, but it, it's actually kind of been a rough week. We talked last Sunday about everything that was happening in the world, and it was so, at least for me, it was so heavy, and all it's done since is get heavier. The more stuff that's coming out, the implications of the stuff that we saw as they work themselves out, the way this whole thing's been politicized and talked about, it's just so heavy. So Tim and I were talking yesterday, because the Psalms give us this great like repertoire of language to use when we're feeling overwhelmed. But some of the Psalms are way too positive for moments like these. So we actually chose a Psalm that, that is way too positive for moments like these. And we want to pray that we would live into the words rather than declare that we do. So we're gonna to read together Psalm 46, which is God is refuge and strength and God's gonna end war. and and. Uh, I don't know about you, I kind of don't believe that. And so I want to read this as a prayer, God, make this true of me and make this true of us, that we can live that securely in your world and hoping and, and believing that there will come a day when war will be over and every tear will be wiped away from every eye. So if you wouldn't mind, let's stand up. And we're going to read this out loud together. It's 11 verses. But if you come across a phrase that you're like, ooh, I'm not sure I, I, I believe this. That, that, exactly. That's the moment we say, God, make this true of us. Make this true of me. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought to the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord, Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So God, these are words that we read to you. And yet, even as I was reading them right now, there are little pulls. Um, Therefore, I will not fear. Lord, it's just so easy. To, and there's, it seems like there's so much to be afraid of in our world. Lord, that you are a help and a refuge. Lord, I want that to be true. I want to like, live into that reality and not just have it be a religious cliche or words on a page. God, we yearn for the day when the machines of war are silenced and human life is no longer so cheap. When the blood ceases to cry out from the ground by people who have been crushed in the machine of global conflict. And God, we yearn to be people who, with real grief and with real hope, live at this intersection of the now and the not yet. We know you are God, we know you are good, we know, Lord, you sit on your throne even this morning, and yet we cannot wait to see that whole thing manifested throughout every bit of creation. And so, Lord, we're powerless. In this room, we are powerless in the face of atrocity and evil and suffering, and the death of children. And so we call upon you, God, to vindicate yourself in the eyes of the nations and to work for peace through all of those hearts that are open and willing. We ask this in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning. So um, we are mired in Genesis 1. It's beautiful so for some of us. I really like it. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing and progressing <laughs> through this, because as we're going to see, just as a reminder, why are we going so painstakingly slowly through Genesis 1? Several reasons. Number one, Genesis 1 teaches us how to read the rest of the Bible. Um, it teaches us to pay attention to genre and literary design and parallelism and poetry. It teaches us to really look and not just read. We're not just reading it, but we're trying to understand because literally the way Genesis 1 is put together communicates a theological point. That the same design the, and artistry that's displayed in Genesis 1 is the same design and artistry that's displayed by this powerful Elohim that is creating everything into existence. And then secondly, we'll see this, I think, either next week or the week after that how the story starts really determines what problem Jesus is coming to solve later on. And that if we think all Jesus is interested in are invisible souls getting us to some floaty heaven, then we're gonna understand the work of God in the world a certain way. But if we actually believe that what is in view is the reconciliation of heaven and earth, 
then getting Genesis 1 right helps us make sense of the whole story in a very different way. So here we go, Genesis 1, verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And do you remember that phrase? Tohu vavohu. One of the funnest Hebrew phrases in the history of Hebrew phrases. Tohu vavohu. It's a, it's a picture of a desert wasteland, inhospitable space. The earth was inhospitable space. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Remember, we identified last week, there are three images here of like disorder, pre-creation. Darkness, the deep abyss, and tohu vavohu, wild and waste. And notice, we meet another character who is in the presence of all of this disorder, the spirit of God. First mentioned spirit of God. Now, many of us know that the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. And I don't say it right because there's a guttural at the end of that sucker that's so cool. Try again. Ruach. Um, no, I'm not. I'm a neophyte when it comes to pronouncing Hebrew. So, ruach. Um, that's how we would say it in American. Uh, no, go ahead and put that slide up, Joe, if you would. So this is the spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim. And, and the, the really hard part here is that the Hebrew word Ruach can mean either spirit, wind, or breath. So take your hand out right now, put it in front of your face, and say, hello. Okay, what did you feel against your hand? What did you feel? Yeah, something invisible, some sort of invisible energy, correct? And so when that invisible energy is personal, it's called breath. When it's impersonal, it's called wind. And, and when it's described as an animating force for a, a human being, it's called spirit. But ruach, and the only, the only way are you laughing at how I pronounce it every, differently every time? All right, Ruach, okay, there it is. I won't even try. Ruach here is the invisible presence, the, the invisible personal presence of God. That in the midst of disorder and in the midst of chaos, and remember chaos here just means disorder. In the midst of this chaos, the spirit of God is there. The Spirit of God is actually fluttering. It's a verb that's only used by, of birds later in the rest of the Old Testament. The Spirit of God is hovering over these waters. And what's, what's interesting is that we have, and, and I don't know if this was in the mind of the original you know, authors or author, but you have Elohim, and then you have the Spirit of Elohim. And the way the Spirit of Elohim gets expressed in the world is when God does what? hello, what did I do there? He speaks. So you have this weird picture of God, God's breath, and then God's spoken word. Now, and early Christian writers are gonna have a field day with this imagery, right? Absolutely all over the place. I don't know if you know Moses or the committee of Moses understood that's how all of that was working. But already you have this nuanced picture of what God is like. There's Elohim, and then there's this invisible presence of Elohim that comes out when Elohim speaks. 
just a really kind of beautiful picture. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What is the spirit of God going to do? You have seen this slide before, but this, this is why you give money, okay? Right here, look at this. Yeah, Lisa did that. God bless Lisa. So what, and we've covered this before, but it's a new version of an old chart, okay? So that's, we updated a chart, so you're welcome. The earth is formless and void, formless and empty. And so for six days, the first three of which we're going to add forms, and the next three, we're gonna take care of emptiness by adding inhabitants. So these days are parallel to each other, right? So the domain of time on day one receives stars, suns, and moons to mark time on day four. The domain of rakia, the dome, is going to receive fish and birds. The domain of dry land is going to receive animals and people. Do you see how this works? So these aren't random, like we're not just cobbling together a science report here. What we're doing is we're addressing formless and void. The earth was formless and empty, so we're gonna add three forms. And it was empty, so we're gonna add inhabitants. And then God is going to rest, and we've talked a little bit about this. This resting is taking up residence in the cosmic temple. It's not he was tired that day. But this is the, what the Spirit of God is about to do. It's gonna take what is dark and the deep abyss and formless and empty, and it's now gonna order it. And that's what it means to create according to guys like John Walton, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. Are you with me so far? Now, the first three days, next slide. Oh, oh let's, no, let's actually read what he's about to do. Verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. Now, what's the word good mean there, do you think? We're guessing. It's the first time we've met the word good. Does good mean perfect? It feels like a trick question because it is, Susie Lind. Yes. Objection, leading the witness. Yes, your honor, guilty as charged. The word good here, see, I always thought that what God created was perfect, and then the humans came and screwed it up. The word good here doesn't mean perfect. It, it means ordered and full of potential, and then the image bearers are invited to do something with it, which will either be good or bad. Does that make sense? It's not perfect in the sense of like it's in stasis and untouchable. It's good, which means fit for human habitation and open to be taken somewhere. That's what good means here. And we're, we're actually gonna get into this when we get to the image bearing part later on, but I just wanted to draw attention to the word good because I think for often we get this like picture of creation that um, it was, it's like a finished painting. And I think the picture we get is of an unfinished painting where the image bearers are, are designed to, or are created to help finish the details of the painting. So everything he's making, it's not bad and it's not evil, but it isn't perfect. It's, it's loaded with potential and it's, it's weighted 
like waited with opportunity and, and the image bearers are then given the responsibility to exploit in the best way its potential for God's glory and the benefit of all creation. Are you with me on this? So thank you, Stephanie. So art, the reason art matters is because art is an expression of goodness in this sense. Art, like the reason humans can't help but make music and film and poetry and uh, sculpture and architecture, the reason we, like, this is part of the image bearing. We take, we take disorder and we turn it into order and beauty. And that's part of what, like, that's taking potential and turning it into something. That is, like, fundamentally what it is to be human. And at, at the best, our jobs reflect that. And at the worst, they don't because we're sitting in a cubicle. But we get it, we, we're just getting hints of what image bearing is to look like, even by these words, like just what it is to be good. Now, God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God, saw, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Remember, we start, every day starts in the evening. And then we meet the morning. And that's the day. The day starts at night. And the reason that's true is because Genesis 1 starts with darkness and then ends in light. So each day starts in darkness and ends in light. And as we'll see when we get to Sabbath, if the, if the next day starts in the evening of the day before, then what's the first thing you do every day? You rest, which is this really beautiful and compelling picture we'll explore down the road. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now let's talk about the vault for a second. We met it last week, it's called the rakia, that's the Hebrew word. The rakia, picture a dome. So, so the waters, God separates the waters this way. So there are waters up here, and water's down here, and then there's this dome that holds, holds the waters up from coming down into the, the land that he's gonna create in the next day. So picture that, that you have waters, they get separated this way. This realm here, he's gonna call sky or heavens. That's the same word. So when God creates the heavens in Genesis 1, we talked about this the first week, he's talking about the sky. And it's a blue dome, because imagine, we had one of these days earlier this week where it was crystal blue, blue sky. Imagine you're standing there without any awareness of what the universe is like. You look up, you realize that's where water comes from, but there isn't water coming. What's that thing look like to you? It looks like a blue dome, right? Now they knew water came from clouds, but they also believed there was water above the clouds that is only unleashed one time in the biblical story, and that's in the flood. So we'll get to that in a little bit. So the first day he creates time. Is time a material thing? No, it's a realm. Second day he creates a dome. He separates waters. Is creating a physical thing? No, he's creating a realm. Third day, He says, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. Then God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, 
seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning the third day. So what have we done? Next slide, Joe. What we've done, another chart. Chart number two. Can you read that? Okay, I can't. Which is why... I printed it out here. So good. But see, printers cost money. You know what I'm saying? So, if you look carefully on this chart, (laughs) we meet three pictures of disorder that have to be overcome, right? Darkness, deep abyss, wild and waste. Day one, we deal with darkness. Darkness gets boundaried and separated into day and night. And so what has God created there? Time. The next obstacle or, or you know, thing to be overcome is uh, the deep abyss. Tehom is the Hebrew word. And what does God do with it? And day two, he separates it into waters above and waters below. And that is the introduction of this dome called the rakia, or firmament, if you have an old-timey sort of Bible. And what did he create there? The heavens or the skies? Third obstacle, wild and waste. On day three, we take that and we form it into seas and land, and the land now is full of trees. And not just any kind of trees. It's not like God created pine trees, although he does. But they're, they're fruit-bearing trees, and the reason fruit-bearing trees matter is because who eats the fruit? The human beings. So this is all about creating a space where the image-bearers can image the one true God. Are you with me? So he creates three realms. He creates time, the heavens and the skies, fruitful land, what we call earth. All right, now that, are you guys hanging in there? Okay, because it's a lot. I mean, I got, I got more charts, okay? That creates this. Boom. And if you can't see that, copy right here. You can look, look at mine. <laughs> All right, now, do you see that the whole thing is uh, covered in water? And that, that, that banded area that kind of looks rainbow-ish or dome-ish, that's the firmament or the vault or what we are calling the rakia. And that separates the waters above from the waters below in ancient cosmology. The earth or the land sits next to the seas. So what God does is he separates the water this way and creates the heavens, and then he separates it this way and creates the land and the seas. There's a boundary there now. And then notice, under the earth, there's this place called the underworld, and we'll explore that in a little bit. But the earth rests on pillars that keep the earth out of the water. Now again, is this totally foreign to us? Yes. And you're thinking, how, how could God like, let them be so wrong? Because God loves human participants, and he lets us be wrong all the time. And 
the metaphysical truths that are being communicated through this picture of the universe can be communicated through any picture of the universe. Because this isn't about getting the details right, this is getting about the work of God right and how humans fit into it. So I could use our conception of the universe with our diagrams to make the same metaphysical claims. But I want you to see that this is the image that we're going to explore the rest of our time together. That, that there are the highest heavens which rest above the waters above, then you've got the waters above, then you've got the rakia, then you've got the land, and then you've got the sea, and then you have the waters below. All right, totally makes sense. But I want you to notice the, all the biblical language that uses this picture. All right, jump if you would. Joe, just go straight to Exodus. I don't want to confuse him with another chart. Yeah, I don't know. You shall not make for yourself, this is part of the like, do not like make a false image command of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Do you see that? That's the picture. It's this three-tiered cosmos of the heavens, the earth, and the waters. Or, next slide. We're gonna take our time through this one. This is Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as a garment. He stretches out the heavens, the sky, like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chamber on the waters. So that's the very tip top of that diagram. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. What are the foundations? Those are the pillars that keep it out of the water. It can never be moved. You covered it with watery depths as with a garment. He's just literally describing walking through like the picture we just looked at. The water stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. And at the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. So this is another creation story. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. All right, or next, from Psalm uh, 115. We're gonna explore this one here um, next week or the week after. The highest heavens belong to the Lord. The earth he has given to who? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin just said, oops. Yeah, God may wanna rethink that one at the end of the day. But yes, that, that makes a really important metaphysical claim that we are gonna explore. Oops, indeed. All right, next. Let's go to Philippians, Joe. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and where? Under the earth. So there's so much of the Bible that actually opens up 
particularly the Psalms, um, there are some Proverbs, Job, Jonah, when you understand that this is the picture we're getting. You have the heavens, which are the skies. You have the earth, which is the land. And then you have the waters. And the waters, there, there are pleasant waters, which are called like the seas or just regular water. But then you have the deep abyss, which represents disorder. And that is sometimes called the pit or the abyss or the grave or death. Or metaphorically, in the belly of a big fish in the book of Jonah. So this kind of opens up some of the language that's used in the rest of the Bible. Are you with me on this point? So good. So good. Now, back to the obstacles, Joe. We have three obstacles. Darkness, the deep abyss, wild and waste, tohu vavohu. First three days, address these and create realms, correct? Now, even though, now here, here we're getting to the meat of what I'm going to try to communicate this morning. This story of how God takes darkness and creates light, waters and creates skies, and waters and creates land, those three stories get turned into metaphors throughout the rest of the Bible, both positively and negatively. So, I want to look at darkness and deep abyss and wild and waste as pictures that human beings use to describe what human beings do to each other when warfare, strife, evil takes over the earth. All right? So in the Genesis story, they're just pictures of disorder, but they turn into pictures of evil. They turn into pictures of suffering. And as we'll see in a little bit, they also turn into pictures of salvation, all right? One of the reasons why Genesis matters is because it gives us language that the other biblical writers are going to use throughout the rest of the story to describe their experience with God. Are you with me? All right, so let's talk darkness for a second. John 1. In the beginning was the word. Now, the minute you read in the beginning, you guys know. I mean, where's he fishing? Genesis 1, baby. In the beginning was the word. Oh, we could, we could talk about that. And the word was with God and the word was God. What? He was with God in the beginning. That's so weird. Through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now we know we're talking about Jesus because the word becomes flesh. But then notice, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was what? Light. But notice what opposes the light of Jesus. Next slide. Oh, we're missing the big one. Go back. And that light was the light of all mankind. The next verse reads, from memory. <laughs> and the light was not understood by the darkness, but the light overcame it. Not how it reads, but that's the point. <laughs> so, it'll be so great. This is my fault. Joe, Joe is totally innocent. Joe just puts on what I give him. So I'm missing this one. But the, the point I wanted to make is that light and dark from Genesis 1 become now a picture later in the story of light overcoming darkness. Are you with me? Now, let's look at, uh, what's the next one? Uh, tohu vavohu. 
This is from Jeremiah 4. We looked at it last week in case you're keeping score. Notice, this is, this is an oracle about the invasion of Jerusalem from a foreign power. Tell this to the nations. Proclaim concerning Jerusalem. This is when Jerusalem is about to get destroyed. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. So what are we describing here? War, right? A very human enterprise. But notice the language that is now going to be employed about what's about to happen to Jerusalem. You're actually going to see the days of creation go in reverse as, as Jerusalem is uncreated by Babylon. Okay? Notice. They will surround Jerusalem like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is, how it pierces to the heart. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I write in pain. This is the prophet talking. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent for I've heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. They are coming. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the war trumpet? My people are fools. This is God speaking. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They're skilled in doing evil. They know how, not how to do good. I looked at the earth and it was what? Right, tohu vavahu. And at the heavens, and their light was gone. All right, so we've just met. Now, now, okay, so this is the prophet describing what he's seeing as the city is besieged. The light in the heaven goes out, and the land, remember, earth is not the globe, the earth is land, that the land of Jerusalem is now formless and empty. Do you see, he's saying it's reverted back to disorder. Do you see that? That human beings can unleash uncreation on each other and dehumanization on each other. We can actually have the, the way we treat each other, we can actually turn what is ordered and good into what's disordered and unjust. Do you see that? Notice how he describes the wasteland. I looked at the mountains, they were quaking. All the hills were swaying, so the land isn't stable. Next, I looked, there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away, so that realm is now empty. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Now, did God do this to them? No, the army did it, but they're gonna attribute it to the to God because of the covenant promise that said if Israel didn't obey God, Israel would be chastised by another nation. This is what the Lord says, the whole land will be ruined though I will not destroy it completely. Therefore the earth will mourn and the heavens will, above will grow dark because I have spoken and will not relent, I've decided and will not turn back. So something evil is happening in the world and what imagery does the prophet use to describe this. He reaches all the way back to Genesis 1 verse 2. 
And he says, Jerusalem has become tohu vavohu, wild and waste. There is no light, there are no people, there are no birds, it is in ruin. So do you see how that imagery gets pulled forward? Or let's talk about the deep. All right, next, let's go to, uh, yes, Psalm 69. The psalmist here is suffering at the hands of, of some of his, of his enemies, and notice how he describes their oppression. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. Now, is he talking about drowning? Is he talking about drowning, literally? No, he's not saying, hey, I was swimming today and I got stuck in some mud. No, what's he talking about? Next. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head, which I'm glad I'm bald. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. So people are opposed to this person, correct? And what language does he use to describe that? He goes all the way back to the deep abyss language of Genesis 1-2, and he says, I am being swallowed up by the deep. I can't keep my head above water. So the images we get in Genesis 1 of disorder become images of evil that humans do to each other. Are you with me so far? But the images of God creating in Genesis 1 also become images of salvation. So, how can it be so late already?
stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a what? Huh? Have we heard that before? And turned it into what? The waters were divided just like he does in day number two and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. Are you seeing this? Are you Smoking what I'm selling right now? That's a, I was going to make a, yeah, yeah. Okay, next. Here, do you want another water separation story? Let's do it. Yes. As soon as the priest, this is Joshua entering the promised land. As soon as the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan River. Its water slowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the, the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. And lo and behold, the Jordan was at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town that was that and the Israelites walked through on dry land. What is God doing there? Separating the waters and allowing dry land to appear. So these images in Genesis get played out all over the, and, and we're not paying, at least me, I'm not paying close enough attention to appreciate what's actually being said in these images, right? That God is constantly creating. When you get to Jesus, oh man, there's so much water stuff with Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John, where? In the Jordan River. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, which, oh, that verb is like, it's like a rending of the sky. And the spirit descended on him like a dove. So here's Jesus coming out of what? And encountering who? The Spirit. Interesting that baptism then becomes this like predominant symbol for Jesus followers of salvation as we come up out of the water. So baptism isn't just some random image. It's a picture that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 of salvation from water. Notice, and then um, and a voice said from heaven, oh, you are my son whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. Those words are straight from the prophets, and it's amazing. Now, one last thing, uh, and then we'll do five minutes of uh, uh, questions. Notice, this is another encounter from Jesus. Um, the day, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, hey, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious storm 
came up and the waves broke over the boat so that they were nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. <laughs> the disciples woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Oh, so he, get, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the water, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now, have we met anybody in the biblical story who speaks and waves and wind obey? Who does that? Not a trick question. God does that. So <laughs> he looks at his disciples and said, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? What's the faith in? Right? It's the recognition that he actually has authority over the waves. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So the earliest Christian testimony about Jesus is that he has the same spoken word power over creation that Elohim did back in Genesis chapter 1. Are you with me? All right, now, let's do real quick questions, and then we'll, we'll close it up. Oh, wow. Tim Skipper. Oh, oh, two of the best and brightest right here. We got to be quick. Remember the, yeah. the three cues. Three cues. Cl clear. That's a cue. Quick question. <laughs> Clarifying. Is he, uh, yeah. <laughs> three cues. That's the three cues. Okay. Um, it seems, so this chaos order dynamic. Yes. Chaos is the realm of potential. And so in order to create order, you have to reach back into chaos. So what does it say about the nature of God that he would cr set up? this world in that way yes and not just order everything completely oh okay this is going to be the most profound theological point genesis is going to make that god refuses to do the work for us he wants to do the work with us so that's what prayer is that's what bible reading is the whole job is participation he will not do it for us. Why, when, when the Israelites have to go to battle, do, do, do they make Moses stand like this the whole time? And as he's standing like this with his arms up, the battle goes well, and when he drops his hands, it goes poorly. What's that symbolically representing? I will not fight for you. I will fight with you. That, that is what it means to bear God's image. So when the image bearers shake their fist at God and say, God, why do you allow all of this awful stuff? God at times may look back at the image bearers and ask, well, why do you? Mm, so good. Yes. One was, and sorry, oh, um, one of them was, and then God remembered Noah. Yes. Remembered implies forgot. No. Okay, so that's what I was going to have you speak to, because also in the one about Jesus, like, waking up, like, I picture myself with my amazing partner, right? Like, he's Kenzie. napping. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, and the kids are screaming and whatever. And Don't you like, care that I'm drowning? Yeah, like, I have to ask. Have yeah. you, ha why do I have to ask if you know that I'm already? So oh. that, both of those ideas to me implied forgotten. Yes. Oh, so good. Okay. I don't have time to do a riff on remember, but, but the Hebrew word there 
means seen. It's not forgot. It means um, held back in front of. Um, God paid attention to his covenant and then acted. So it's not a, he was out of his attention and now he remembers. It's, it's a verb of now he's acting on the covenant promise he made. Does that make sense? The second question, see that, see that first question. Like why, why, if he knows we're drowning, did he make us wake him up? Why do you think? I mean, the whole biblical story is people saying, hey God, rouse yourself. Let's go. Let's giddy up. And God sometimes acting and sometimes not acting, and there doesn't seem to be a formula to guarantee acting, you know? So that's so frustrating. And why? I mean, I'm just gonna keep going back to the idea that image bearing means he wants participants. Now, do I think he acts independently of us all the time? Sure, the sun came up. Absolutely. But I think the New Testament teaching on prayer is that there are things that would happen but don't because people don't pray. And so, I don't know, I think, I think we have a lot more agency in the world than we think, which is great news and scary news. And, and there are streams of Christian theology that take the evil that humans do and say, well, that must be God's will because that's happening in the world. And that, I don't think that's how it works at all. That's actually attributing the work of the enemy and, and fallen human souls to God, and that's not God, on God at all. Okay, one more. Well, hello. Hello. I get to hold the mic. Um, good morning. Good morning, Brooke. So my question, I'm trying to draw together. There's a lot of threads that I feel for me in my brain are kind of loose right now. Yeah. And one of the things I'm, one of the themes I'm picking up from what you're talking about today is separation. And I'm, I've never picked up that before and from some of the stories you're tying together. Can you talk more about how uh, separation plays into the creation story and then throughout the Bible? Yes. Just a quick, quick Just a quick one, great. okay. And it has to be really quick. So there are some scholars, and this is a minority view, that see the word bara, that we translate create, that literally, it, it, it shouldn't be create in the sense of create physical things. It, the word actually means separate. Because what God is doing in the first three days is just separating things, right? I don't buy that. We, we, we did a whole thing on Barah as um, taking something that is disordered and nameless and functionless and then giving it a name and, and putting it in an order and giving it a function. So separating in that sense is bringing something into existence that wasn't there before. Okay, so the, the separating he's doing is exactly what an ancient person would understand the word to create to mean. That we have undifferentiated cosmic nothingness symbolized by water, darkness, tohu, vavohu. And then now what he's doing is he's separating and notice he names everything and then he gives it a function in the universe. Those three things are, are to an ancient worldview what it means to create something. Yeah. Come on. I, I, maybe I want them to be like a neat, like I want there to be a theme and, and like there to be a specific, um, this is what God is doing and this is why this motif keeps coming up. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. 
I don't know. I know the, the veil parting, there are some people think that on, on the veil was actually a cosmology, like a, a, um, uh, an, an astrological like, uh, picture of the, the created universe. And so that, to- that, that being torn is the, like, the equivalent of the heavens being torn open. So that now human beings have access to God in a way that they didn't before. But I don't know that I could camp on the separation idea any, any more than that. But that's a great, I mean, but, but see, this is what Genesis is trying to get us to do, to pay attention to things that happen over and over. Now, we can go crazy on this and invent stuff that isn't there, but when you, Genesis is teaching us to read the rest of the Bible this way, to look for repetition in literary design and the pulling back of words and images from earlier parts of the story, absolutely. So I think you're, you're utterly on to something. All right, I know we have more. Two things, number one, Kevin is back. And so we have his discussion class if you wanna chew on this more. Secondly, if you text in questions and comments, the Reverend Dixon answers those, which is amazing. We call it Rev Kev, oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. There may be a few of us who've nominated him as a bishop um, in, in some like Unitarian sense. Um, no, anyway, here's what we're gonna do. Um, I, we're going to turn a corner and we're gonna do our liturgy into the Lord's Supper. What I'd love for you to do is we're gonna sing um, a song of just reflection. How does this strike you? What jumps out to you? What pictures present themselves to you? Susie's then gonna come up and, and set up communion and the stations, and then we will participate together in um, our normal work as a community. So Lord Jesus, again, fascinating stuff, but we want it to impact the way that we see you and impact the way that we see the story and impact the way that we see Jesus. We want it to make a difference um, in how we understand the world and our place in it. And so we pray that you would take this, in, this loads of information and form us out of that so we might better bear your image. And to that end we pray in Christ's name, amen.